the book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel. Or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now, these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people. And he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. 
Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depth of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. Good morning, everybody. So the book of Micah in six minutes. There you go. You like those videos we've been doing each week? Those are so helpful. Um, So gives us the bigger context for what we're looking at today. So obviously we're in the book of Micah. If you have a Bible in front of you or an app you can access, you actually can go through the app now and you can get to the scriptures. Uh, Find your way to Micah chapter 6. We're going to land in verses 6 through 8 this morning. So we're in this series called Ancient Wisdom, going through what we call the Minor Prophets, and really actually probably um, helping us to see what we don't usually see in the Old Testament, or at least we don't think we see, which is God is a God of compassion. We usually think, oh, Old Testament God, angry, grumpy, looking for people who he can cry and judge and pour out his wrath, which actually you see the opposite is true. And the same is true in the book of Micah. You see in the same cycle over and over, God calls to his people to turn back from the way that they're going. So and what happens, either they heed the warning or they failed it, but then God comes again and he restores. So it's this cycle over and over again. And, and the book of Micah is very similar. But this morning, what, what I want to kind of focus in on, there's a lot to cover obviously in Micah, but I want to dial in on these three verses because 
one of the things that we have to understand about God's desire for restoration in our lives is that God is never just about the individual. And so when we talk about a God of restoration and God restoring, we usually will end up thinking in terms of the context of our own life and what God's going to restore and do for us at the exclusion of the context of the world around us or the culture that we live in. But as you can see from the reference back to Abraham, that God called his people, he blessed them to be a blessing in the world and actually to shape the world that they live in. And so this morning, what I want to take some time to do, and we'll, we'll see this from, from these few verses, is talk about when, what does it look like to live in a restored community? What does it look like when people who are being restored by God live that restoration out in their lives? How does it shape the culture around them? So let me read these three verses, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. So Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6, says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Probably the most famous verse, obviously, in the whole book of Micah is verse 8. That's where we want to kind of land this morning. Because one of the things that you and I have to understand about the way God works is that his kingdom comes to reign in our lives and begins to shape everything around us and through us when we surrender ourselves to him. Why is that important? Because as followers of Jesus, one of the things that we have a tendency to do in our lives is we, when we live in a culture that is counter to what we know and what we should live out, what we tend to do is we either hang on for dear life in the middle of the culture in this horrible and perverse culture that we live in. We just hang on until Jesus comes back or we die and we go to heaven and like, finally, I'm out of this culture. Or we, we come against the culture and we talk about how horrible the culture is and how much better we are. And so there's this antagonistic thing instead of what realizing when we live restored lives, you know what God's called us to do? He's called us to create culture. To actually not change the culture by being against the culture, but change the culture from the inside out by living restored lives. And the word in this, in, this, in, in verse 8 that we always go to is, he says, what does the Lord require? And the moment you and I hear the translated word require, what is it, what's the expectation? What do I have to do in order for God to work in my life? What hoop do I have to jump through for me to be good enough for God to pour out his grace in my life? That's not what that word means. That word actually, the word require means what is God's longing, what is God's desire, what is God's passion for his people and the culture that they live in. That's what it's saying. It's that God's deepest desire is what? Is that you do justice, that you love kindness, that you walk in humility with God. That's God's, that's a restored community. That's a restored group of people who are not only, they're not, not, not just enduring culture, they're actually shaping and creating the culture they're, that they're in, which means it's possible as you and I live out restored lives to see the culture around us begin to change. Not because we've said it's bad and somehow everybody wakes up, oh, it's bad, I shouldn't live this way. No, because they see the lives of restored people living out what it looks like to be God's people. That's what he had called his people in the Old Testament to do. That's what he calls us to today. So with that in mind, three things we're going to touch on in verse 8. The first one is this, what God's restoration looks like, what he desires for us to live in. The first one is to do justice for all. 
So the term, the word justice obviously is a legal term, and when we hear justice, we automatically default to kind of the courtroom setting. Somebody's been wronged, a crime's been committed, so somebody has to pay, so we look for justice. And the ultimate outcome of true justice is this thing called equality, where even though something wrong has happened here, something has made it right, and now there's this supposed to be this equality. That's what justice is. So God calls us to live lives that value people equally all around us. But how many of us know we live in a culture that that's not true? That there isn't an equal value for all people in our world, in our culture. But we have to live in a way that we live restored lives, that we value people equally. And there's two ways specifically I think that this works its way out when we talk about justice. And that is because justice is not the norm. Injustice is the norm for our culture. But the way that that works itself out outside the legal system, I think, is in two areas in our country. And one of those is in our economics. Now, hear me on this. This is not a political statement. This is not conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican. This has nothing to do with the presidential election, who you should vote for. This is the reality of the culture that we live in currently. So there is an economic injustice in our culture. That's why when we look around, in our, in our, particularly in our nation, there are people who are extremely wealthy, and there are people who are extremely poor. And that seems to be the case all of the time throughout human history. Remember what Jesus said, the poor will be with you always? Why did he say that? Because the reality of brokenness in the world is that there's always going to be this, this economic indifference or inequality in that because of choices or circumstances or things beyond people's control, there ends up, there ends up being a cycle of poverty in their lives. But, but if God has called us to be, be a people who seek justice and live that out in our lives, and that means even in our economics, the way that we see people around us, that means that when we see people who are living in poverty, there's something inside of us that says, that's not right. And we have to do something in order to change that. We get to change culture. So how are, what's really amazing about what's happening in our church is this is happening in, in our lives and in our city because of so many people within our church who have really looked at this seriously and said, okay, we need to respond. So we do that globally when we look around the world and we have, we're supporting Haiti and we go and we care for orphans. I don't know the last count, but there are so many people in our church now that through Connect2 are sponsoring orphans in Haiti that we're making a huge difference and then we're partnering with building orphanages. Why? Because here's a group of people who cannot... They cannot advocate for themselves. They can't change their context. But people who live by justice can change the culture that they live in. In our city, it happens all the time. Yesterday, we sent a team down to Skid Row to go down to inner, inner city L.A. to care for the needs of people who are in the cycle of poverty. Some of them living on the streets for most of their lives. Some of them because of choices. Some because of mental illness. Some because of addiction. But we're not there to say, okay, well, here's the 10 reasons why you find yourself in this context. Get a life. That's not what we're there for. We're there to care. Why? Because there's an economic inequality between what that person's experiencing and what we're experiencing. It happens every time throughout. There's five laundromats now and more that will be coming of laundry love through our community groups. Every time you walk into a laundromat and you help fund somebody's laundry, which really isn't the core of what laundry love's about. It's to build relationship with people that you're normally not going to cross paths with. And you build that relationship. You're, again addressing those. And little side note, this is really cool, so you kind of get the inside scoop of what's happening. There's a, tra- a really amazing transition happening with the Samaritan Center, which many of you know we support. Betty Eske, who's a part of our church, she's the director there. Uh, they have done an amazing job of trying to help meet the needs through people supporting and caring through that, that organization. But, but the, the weight of the need in our city is greater than what the Samaritan Center can do. And the reason why it's set up that way is because the Samaritan Center was never intended to meet the needs of the poor in our city. You know who was set up to do that? 
the church. And that's where the shift is coming now. And this is something that's board approved now at the Samaritan Center. They're in this transition where historically what they've been is kind of like a warehouse. Whereas somebody who's living on the street or is struggling in poverty comes in there and they, they give them services. They give them food and clothing and a shower and try to help them get jobs and all these different things. But what they're realizing is there's no way this is not sustainable. We can't meet the needs of the city. And so because of that, there's been a dialogue that Betty and I have had, and now it's expanded to eight to ten churches, and it'll expand from that, that what the move is is to move to more of a clearinghouse, which is somebody in our city, and this is not just someone living on the street. This is a good portion of our city that lives in a home but is living far beneath the, the, the poverty level with, with our nation and what that's considered. So they walk into the Samaritan Center and they say, listen, I, I can't afford to buy diapers for my baby. I can't afford to put a full week's worth of meals on the table for my family. My kids are going back to school and I can't afford to buy them clothing and I, I, I don't have any resources. And so instead of the Samaritan Center saying, okay, well, we can do all this for you, what they've done and what we're shifting to is that every church in our city will take one piece of the pie. So one church will take on diapers, another church will take on clothing, another church will take on food, another church will take on whatever it is. It might be transportation. So that by the time someone walks through the doors of the Samaritan Center, if they are in need in our city, there will be no more reason for them to be in need. Why? Because Samaritan Center, no. Because the body of Christ has said, we're going we're gonna to balance the scales of economic inequality, and we're going to help people. Does that sound kind of cool to anybody? I'm a little excited about it. We actually can change your city. I would love to live in a city, and I've, I've shared my context. We kept coming from Newburgh, Oregon, we watched this happen, and there were 30 churches involved. In the city of Newburgh, there was no reason for anybody to be in need unless they chose to be. That's what I want for our city in Simi Valley. That's what I want. I don't want anyone who's in poverty chooses to be in poverty because the churches have said, listen, we're going to care for the needs of our city. So pretty exciting stuff. Secondly, this one gets a little bit more difficult. Not only do we see the economic in, in, injustice or inequality, but we see it ethnically in our, in our culture. And this is where God calls us to change culture. As people who are followers of Jesus, as the people of God, we are, we are called biblically to care for people of different ethnicity, especially for those who are coming from a different context in their ethnicity. They're coming from a different country. Listen to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. God's people are supposed to love foreigners. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What is being said there is, listen, people who come from different backgrounds, they don't come from your country. They, they're in your, your country. They have a different, uh, maybe a different language. They have a different skin color. They have a different culture. They're foreigners. As people of God, we're supposed to love them. That's throughout Old Testament, and it's throughout the New Testament. We're supposed to love them. So let's just take this down to even a more practical way. We live in a country that strives for ethnic equality, yet we are far from it. Now, now when I say that, because we are in a predominantly white room right now, there are some in the room right now who are going to push back on me because we don't see it. And here's the reality of this imbalance that we have to come to grips with. And hear me, this has nothing to do with politics. Sometimes I get frustrated because we let politics hijack an issue that is, is spiritual, an issue that is what God is dealing with, and we chalk it off to one side or the other. It's not that. This is a human issue. So here's the reality when it comes to ethnicity. We, most of us are not going to stand up and say, yeah, I'm a racist. Most of us don't do that. But you know, deep down inside, and I know this is true in me, we end up finding ourselves in the middle of racial biases. 
that creep up out of nowhere. You're like, ooh, wow. If you're honest with yourself, sometimes you're like, yeah, I looked at that person differently because the color of their skin. If you're honest with yourself, I know I'm guilty of that. And there has to be those moments where God kind of opens our eyes to see that maybe this, this, what we call this beautiful melting pot isn't quite as melted as we think it is. See, we live in more of a context that is more middle-class, white, suburban. We don't understand inner city with ethnicity attached to it. So let me, let me give you this example, because I know in my, my life I've experienced so many one of these aha moments where God says, yeah, you know what, there's change that you need to bring in your life and around you. So there's a book called Empowered Evangelicals that our leaders are reading through right now. And uh, one of the last chapters, the, the author, Rich Nathan, he records a, an encounter that he had in, in this pastor's meeting. He's in Ohio and pastor's there. And so they had this pastor's meeting, a bunch of pastors getting together to talk. And so it was, it was African-American white pastors getting together. And as they were talking, there was this discussion. And one of the African-American pastors made this comment. He said that he really felt like there was there was racial bias in the way that the, the movie The Passion of the Christ was marketed to the body of Christ in the United States. Because he said, he said, for me, he goes, I never got the flyer, I never got an email, I never got any information on it, but I, I found out about these screenings that they had for pastors around town. And so I slipped into one of them. He said there was over a thousand pastors there. And he goes, I went and I counted there were only four African-American pastors there. And he said, I feel like they've missed something because there was some bias, even intentionally, unintentionally. Well, as he's sharing this, a white pastor pushes back on him and says, I don't see that. I don't, I don't think there was any racial bias in the marketing of this. And, and so he took offense to it. And then this is, I wanted to read this. This is the African-American pastor's response to that. He says, so this African-American pastor looked at that white brother and he said, are you so naive? Do you really think that the world is as racially blind as you imagine? Then turning to the white pastors in the room, he said, How many of you white brothers have taught your sons what to do with their hands when the police pull them over in their cars? All the white pastors just sat there and stared. He said, now, how many of you brothers have taught your sons what to do with their hands when they are pulled over by the police? Every African-American pastor raised their hands. He said, how many of you white brothers have taught your congregations how to shop? I didn't know what he was about or what he was talking about. Then he said, how many of you brothers have taught your congregations that when you go into a store and you are reaching for something to use big motions because white store owners are going to be following you around believing you are shoplifting? Again, all of the African-American pastors' hands went up. My friend looked at me and said, you know, Rich, when you look in the mirror in the morning, you see a man. When I look in the mirror in the morning, I see a black man. I am aware of race every day of my life. You are never aware of race. When I read that for myself, I went, oh. Oh, how can I say, hey, everything's fine. I grew up in middle-class white America. I did not grow up in racially diverse, African-American dominant inner city of America. And that's when we hear all the things about, oh, the shootings and people's first justification in our suburbs is it was their own fault. They shouldn't have been breaking the law. Why were they shot? But you and I have a different perspective if we don't live there. God doesn't call us to make a judgment call. God calls us to help even the scales of the ethnic inequality in our culture. How do you do that? Sit down with a, some, somebody from, of a different ethnic background than you and ask them this question. What is it like for you to grow up and live in America? Ask them. I guarantee, it will, if you're white, it will be different than what you've experienced. 
and you will have a deeper appreciation for where they come from and a better understanding of what God wants you to do. We've got that? It gets really quiet when we talk about race or things like that. That's the reality of what we live in. We can't ignore what's happening in the inner city because of the difference in ethnicity. We can't. It's a part of our country. It's something we have to navigate. I'll move on now. Second thing, the restoration God desires also in changing culture has to do with loving kindness for all. So we love the concept of kindness. Kindness interchanged with the word mercy. Those two go hand in hand. And mercy obviously is, is not giving somebody what they deserve. We know that. It really has the connotations of doing them a favor that they don't deserve. And so in this, we understand that if we're going to change culture, if we're going to see a restored culture around us, that means that we are now changing the default. In our culture, the default for people as a whole is to be harsh with each other. How many would say that's true? If you don't believe that, get on the freeway just after the service concludes and find people on the freeway. The default we have in our culture is the more people are around, the more agitated we get, the more harsh we are, the more self-centered we are. That's just our nature. But if we're going to be people who live restored lives, that means our default has to change, that we can change the default from harshness to kindness, to actually being kind towards people, especially people that we don't necessarily think deserve it. Two ways that I think this, this works out just so I want you to picture for a moment, if we were to actually live restored lives, we were actually to change the default. What if in our culture and in our lives, we responded gently to harshness? What if that became the default? When somebody was harsh or you're in an intense uh, context, instead of being harsh like everybody else, you actually were kind. Would it change the culture we live in? Dramatically. Listen to Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How many know that's true? When somebody is already intense, you don't come along and whack them again. What do they do? They get more harsh, but you come along and you show kindness, and they begin to melt. So a few weeks ago on Labor Day, we went out to dinner to Sioux Plantation out in Porter Ranch, uh, Kim and Courtney and Jordan and I and, and B, and we were... We got to there, and, and, and everybody in their family and their mother literally decided to go to Sioux Plantation on Labor Day in the evening. And so we got there, and the line was just about out the door. By the time we got in the door, it had started forming out the door. Both sides were open. So if you've been to Sioux Plantation, so there's just this wall-to-wall people. And you could tell the moment you walked in, a lot of grumpy people. Everyone's, it's my day off. I'm really hungry. I don't want to wait in this line. Why aren't these employees doing their job? You know, you've been there, Right. So we're walking into that environment, and so I'm, I'm looking down the salad bar, and I'm looking at all the employees, and they look absolutely miserable. You can tell they're hating their job today. And there's one gal in particular, she's at the, the front of the, the salad bar, and she's kind of mixing salads, and she's working really hard. She's, you know, you can tell she's, she's a little intense, and so, and I, I'm watching like five or ten people in front of us, and people are complaining, you know, why are we running out of salad? Where's the plates? You know, the typical kind of complaints when people are grumpy and hungry, and so we get up there, and I'm just watching her eyes, and she's like, she doesn't want to make eye contact with anybody because she's just frustrated. And I said, hey, I said, kind of a crazy night, huh? She's like, yeah. She just kind of looked at me and shook her head, and I said, thank you for working on Labor Day. And she goes, oh, thanks. And you could tell she's kind of like, he acknowledged my humanity, that I am a human being. I'm not just a salad maker. I'm actually a person. And so as we're moving down, another employee comes by, and I could, she's stressed out too, and she's trying to replace everything, and people are like, you know, complaining. And, and I said, hey, I said, thank you so much for working on Labor Day. And she's kind of stopped. She's all, thanks. And she went on. You could see, like, there was, like, half a smile on her face now. And then we're getting out, and that happened two, three times. And then we got to the, the end where we're going to pay, and 
So uh, the lady, she's okay. She says how much it is and everything. And, and I said, I said, is it normally this insane on Labor Day? And she goes, no, you think this is bad? She goes, you should have been here this morning. We just started selling bacon, and people are, are addicted to bacon. She pulls out this flyer. She goes, there were so many more people here this morning because we had bacon. She goes, I don't ever want to work again because of bacon. She's like telling us this. And I looked at her. I said, thank you for working on Labor Day. And she goes, oh, no problem. So nice. And so she rings us up. And so then we go to, if you've been to Stew Plantation when it's busy, you don't pick your own seats. They seat you. So then this gal, she's got her clipboard, and she's, you could tell she's like feverishly trying to find how many people and how many, where they can fit. And so she has uh, some some seats for us, so we're following her around. And just as we round the corner, this other family that she had just sat previously before us make a beeline for the seat she was going to give us, and they take the seats. And they said, yeah, we didn't like our seats, so we're going to sit over here. And I could tell, it's like, oh, here's her perfect plan, you know, kind of all falling down around her. And I said, man, this is tough, isn't it? She goes, yeah. But I looked at her, I said, thanks for working on Labor Day. And she's like, you're welcome. And so she said, let me find some other seats for you. And, and she, so she did, and it worked out. And I remember just looking around and thinking, everyone's just, you know, complaining about, where's the stinking onions? I want more lettuce. Where's my beets? I need more t- croutons, right? And that's the environment. And like, yet yeah, there's humanity in front of you. And they're being dealt with harshly. What if we actually allowed kindness to take place in every aspect of our lives. Then the second reality, picture this. Not, a, what if, not only if, if, if we responded gently to harshness, what if we actually responded kindly to failure? When somebody actually fails, instead of piling on, pointing out their failure, telling them how bad they are, what if we actually responded kindly and with mercy would it change our culture? It would revolutionize our culture. If we lived as restored people. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That God's compassion and kindness even comes through the minor prophets. And says, listen, I'm going to turn your heart and I'm going to do this by showing you kindness to help you come to a place of repentance in your life. That even God does that in our lives. What does that look like when we're merciful? When somebody fails and they deserve to catch it and they deserve to be in trouble, what does that look like when they, when they receive mercy and kindness instead of judgment or pounding people? Especially, all right, parents, this is confession time, the way that we deal with our kids. Any parent ever want to admit that you came down hard on your kid when they failed? If I don't raise my hand, Courtney and, Court and Jordan will raise their hand for, my hand for me. They will tell me, yes, Dad has done that. We do that. The rest of you, if you're doing that, either you're a perfect parent or you're lying. So one of the two, okay? But here's the reality. How much does our harshness get our kids' hearts to turn towards us and towards God? Probably not a whole lot. How about in our culture? So I grew up with two wonderful parents who understood this concept better than I did. And there were times when I caught it, and there were times when I got disciplined. In fact, being punished was a sport for me growing up. I got punished probably three times as much as my three older sisters. That was just because I was the youngest and I was a brat. But there are times, really important times in my life, where my parents' response to me was so amazing. It changed my life. And I won't go in detail, but I've shared my journey. I had severe anxiety in, in middle school to the point, point where I, I refused to go to school and then one day decided to run away and I ran away and I, I lasted for seven hours because that was the one day of the year in Southern California where it actually rained and all I had was shorts and a t-shirt on. And so 
So I had to find my way back home, and I ended up finding my way into the garage, and my dad knew I was in the garage, but I didn't know he knew that, and he kept coming out, and then finally he looked straight at me and said, I know you're there, why don't you come on out? So I come into the house, I'm, I'm dripping wet, I'm shivering, I'm miserable, and in my mind, I'm not kidding you, I'm thinking, my life is over. Seriously, I thought, they're going to kill me. I mean, I've been disciplined before, but this will be it. This will be the last discipline of, for all time. So I walk into the house, thinking this is the last time I ever actually walk in my house before I die. And I walk into the, the kitchen, and my dad just puts his hand on my shoulder. He says, why don't you go into your room? He goes, why don't you get some dry clothes on and then come back out? I'm like, okay, at least, at least there's some decency. They're going to let me die in clean clothes that are not wet. And so I go in my room, and I'm thinking, I am going to catch it so bad. So I walk out. I come into the kitchen. As I enter into the kitchen, I look through the dining room, and there at the table is a bowl of soup and some bread and some cheese, and then my mom and dad sitting there. And then I'm thinking, this is the last meal that they've <laughs> allowed me to have before they're going to kill me. And I went and I sat down, and I remember they said, we were so worried about you. It wasn't like, why in the world did you run away and make us so upset? No, they said, we were so worried. We didn't know where you were. We didn't know what was happening to you. And they said, we want to help you. What can we do to help you? And they sat there, and they just talked with me. And there were just tears in their eyes, and I started crying. And I couldn't believe it. I'm thinking, this is too good to be true. I thought, for sure. But I remember after that moment, something changed in me that I realized no matter how bad I messed up in my life, that my parents loved me enough to show me mercy, to love me enough to help me to turn from what I was doing because of their compassion and their kindness towards me. Can you imagine if that was the default for our culture? That instead of harshness, there was kindness? And that's what it looked like to be a restored people? It would change our city, it would change our world, and then Beyond that, there's a final point, and that is the end of verse 8, that last phrase, and that is God's restoration, what he desires, what his purpose is, what it looks like is to walk humbly with God. So humility is not humiliation. Humiliation is when you get caught and you're embarrassed. That's humiliation. Humility is something different. Humility has the capacity to have an accurate view of God and an accurate view of self. We know how great God is, and we know how not so great we are. Not that we somehow are loathing in our own mess and sin and brokenness, but we understand how good God is because we see it in how light of how broken we are. That's what true humility is. And because of that, God's called us to walk in humility before him and with him. And if we walk that way, it changes culture around us. Two, two things that are important that I mentioned. That humility comes to our lives when we know who we are. When we truly understand and know who we are, not who we're supposed to be, not who we've become in our brokenness, but we know who we are. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what does that passage say? We are sinners, we are broken, but we are saved by this beautiful thing called grace that God extends to us. And why does he extend that to us? We think, oh, well, because he wants to save us from hell. Well, yeah, he wants to do that. But that's a very small reason for salvation. We make it the big deal. It isn't so we're saved from hell. That is the byproduct of God's righteousness in us that we don't get punishment that we deserve. But the beauty is that in the process of being saved, isn't just this future event that when Jesus comes back or I die, then I'm saved. It's the reality that God is in the process of saving us even now. 
And that's why the, it says in verse 10, we are his workmanship. We're his artistry. We're his creation. We're his masterpiece. And what grace does is grace comes along and it begins to peel away and carve away and shape away all the sin that has heaped itself upon us by our lifestyle. And it carves it away and what has emerged is the masterpiece that God originally created, buried underneath all of that sin. So we know that we're sinners and we are saved by grace, but we are saved through the process of God sanctifying us and making us right, which means that God is in the, in the process in your life of not restoring you so you could say, I am restored, but restoring you because there's something of who you are that's lost in our sin and brokenness that he is restoring back to what it was. Because back before you were even a thought in the minds of your parents, back before you ever breathed one breath, before you even had a heartbeat and a pulse, God already had in his mind your creation and the work that he had for you, but sin messed it all up. But he didn't give up. He said, even in your brokenness, I'm going to carve away. It's just like a, a master woodworker or a sculptor will take a, a piece of marble or a block of wood and they'll just begin to carve away or scrape away or sand away what doesn't belong. And what is left is what belongs is what? A beautiful sculpture. That you and I, if, if for me, I don't have any of that kind of ability. You put me on a piece of wood and I'll start chipping away and it'll just be dust and ashes when I'm done. But God comes along and he takes the things that don't belong and leaves what does belong. And what's, what emerges is his workmanship. That's who we are. So we are dead and stuck in this block form apart from God with our sin that we can't get freed from. That God comes along and he begins to restore us. Which leads to the second thing. Not only do we know who we are, but we, we know who God is. Listen who God is in these couple passages. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God himself, even knowing who we are and knowing our brokenness and knowing our rebellion and knowing our sin, still is moving our, on our behalf. He's still going after us. He's still making a way for us to experience grace, mercy, and salvation. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Just let that settle in. Before I ever thought of God, before I even thought that there was something wrong with my life, before I ever did anything good, God was already in motion, working on my behalf because of his great love. That's who God is. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we know. That's the God that we should know. And if we know him and we know ourselves, then what is the result? We walk humbly before him because we realize what he has done for us. And maybe for some of us, there's, there has to be that moment where we understand who he is and who we are in conjunction, what that, what that means for our lives. So, so let me give you this picture, and, and then we'll, we'll conclude. But I want you to capture that there's moments that God opens our eyes to see how profound his grace is, how good he is, how broken we are, but how much he loves us. And when we understand that, then we truly can live restored lives. There's a, an obscure movie. It was one of the first movies that Matthew Broderick was ever in. It was, this is pre-Ferris Bueller's Day Off, okay? So this is back in the 80s, and so there's this obscure movie called Lady Hawk. Um, in fact, I watched a couple clips from it the other day. I'm like, oof, that was definitely the 80s. It wasn't so good. Cinema, the cinematography wasn't that good, and the acting was kind of so-so. But the storyline was amazing. And uh, this kind of give you the, the storyline. So... 
So there's this, this couple, man and woman, who, who are together, but they can't really be together because there's been this, this spell that's been cast over them. And this spell, what it does is it causes the man to turn into a wolf at night and the woman to turn into a hawk by day. So the whole concept is, is that they're, they're always together, but they're eternally apart. They can never. So right at sunset and at sunrise, there's this transition where one is coming from human to animal and then vice versa. So they're together, but they can't, they can never be connected. And so the, the main character, which is Matthew Roderick, Philippe Gaston, and he's this thief that's befriended them, and he wants to help them break this curse. So there's this whole thing that they have to do to break the curse. But, but what happens is he's kind of charged with when the man turns into a wolf at night and the woman come go becomes the woman as, as from being the hawk during the day, he's, he's in charge of her at night to care for her. And so something happened in one of those nights that caused the, the man to be extremely upset, thinking that he had compromised, that Philippe had compromised her life. Well, this all comes out after this instance that happens when the man is a wolf at night and they're, they're, they're on this trek and they, they go out onto a, a frozen uh, lake and about halfway out, the wolf, the man, he falls into the water and he's drowning as the wolf and he's freezing to death. And so Philippe goes out on the ice and he puts a spear or a sword into the ice and he gets a rope and he lowers himself into the freezing water and he pulls the wolf out. And as he's pulling him, of course, the reaction of the wolf is something you're attacking me. So he starts to attack back and he starts to scratch him and there's blood. And so Philippe finally pushes the wolf out onto the ice and then he crawls out barely alive and they, they're safe. Well, the next morning, the man, as he turns from the wolf back into the man, he starts going after Philippe about how bad he's been caring for the hawk at night, the woman. And so as he's literally about to kill him because he's so upset, he shoves him to the ground. As Philippe hits the ground, his shirt flies open. And here's all of these scars and all of this blood. And his, his chest is just ripped to shreds. And the man steps back and he said, what's this? And this priest that had been traveling with him steps in. And he said, that happened to him last night when he was saving your life. And then he tells them the story of what happened with the ice. Of course, the man drops his sword and he steps back and he realizes how grateful he is for Philippe, the man he was about to kill because if it weren't for him, he would have died the night before. Now just think about this for a moment. We have the disadvantage that the original disciples had the advantage of, which was they got to walk in and see Jesus. Actually, Jesus walked in on them. And you remember Thomas's encounter? I have to see it. I got to see the nail marks. I, I got to see that, that you were pierced. I got to see, I got to see this. And they got to touch where Jesus was wounded for our behalf. Someday when you and I stand with Jesus, we're going to be able to walk up to him and he's going to show us and say, listen, this is what happened to me when I was saving your life. That's the God we serve. That's the God we serve. And if you think about that for a moment, what is the response? Not humiliation but humility, which says, wow, you did that for me? You're the God of the universe that came down and did that for me? Then the result is that you and I don't live in arrogance or pride or self-sufficiency. We live totally sufficient on Christ and in humility before him, which comes as, a, as a, an aff almost an affront to our culture, which lives in arrogance and pride and insecurity. Can you imagine if we live that way? We walked humbly before God and humbly with each other. It will change the culture that we live in. God has called us not to endure or to speak against the culture, but to change the culture around us by living as restored people. Let's pray.
Lord, we know that for thousands and thousands of years, Lord, it was the Jews that you called to be your people, and then Jesus, through your your death and resurrection, and then the expansion of the gospel, you included all people that who come to know you, be called your people. But you did that, Lord, we know, because you love people and you want more and more people to not perish but experience life with you. But in doing that, Lord, we know that you are in this process of redeeming and restoring and reconciling all things. And that includes, Lord, not only our lives but the culture that we live in. So I pray, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit who lives inside of us, we would live as restored people. Although, Lord, we're not perfect, and we are in the process of being restored, but you would allow us to see what a culture could look like when people who are restored live that way. So, Lord, I pray, help us. Help us in a harsh and difficult culture to be kind and merciful. Help us to, to within an, in, an unjust culture, to bring about equality at every level as we value people as you value them. As well, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be the people who live in humility before you, that we don't live in arrogance or pride or try to boost ourselves up, but Lord, we walk humbly before you, and that would be, the result would be around us, Lord, would be a culture of humility. Lord, we know by the power of your spirit you can do that, but Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength, the courage, and the ability this week to begin to live that out. In Jesus' name, amen.